Have you ever been tempted to give up? I have. Have you ever been tempted to give up when you knew you were pursuing God's will for your life? Doesn't it seem sometimes like when we truly begin to pursue God's will for our lives, that's when everything starts to go wrong. We're tempted to think, God, I'm doing exactly what you asked of me. Why isn't this easier? Or, God, why don't you want to bless me because I'm being obedient? But as you may already know, Jesus never promised that following him would be easy. In fact, Jesus promised the exact opposite. He said things like, in the world you will have trouble. Blessed are you when others persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. I don't know about you, but I feel like I face all kinds of resistance and obstacles and difficulties when I begin to pray for revival in my heart and when I begin to pursue a closer relationship with God. I can commit to spending more time in prayer and then suddenly I have 50 more things to do. When I try to sit down and read my Bible, there's always something else that needs my attention. When you face opposition in pursuing God's will for your life, you always have a couple choices. You can either fight it or flight, fight or flight. And we have to keep in mind that opposition is not always a sign that we are doing things wrong. It can often be a sign that you're actually headed in the right direction. So here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. When opposition tries to keep you from pursuing God's will, let God use it to strengthen you and trust God to give you victory. So I want to share a story with you. There are two things in my life that I'm afraid of. The first one I've already used in a sermon illustration, it's horses. I rode a horse when I was about eight, and I fell off, and I've been terrified ever since. The second thing I'm afraid of, sorry, Evan, motorcycles. <laughs> I rode a motorcycle when I was eight. I didn't fall off, but I'm terrified of motorcycles. So here's a story that was written by a motorcycle-driving pastor, not myself. He says, the Christian life is an adventure and challenge-filled journey. It's very much like riding a motorcycle. It gets deeper. A life of, a, the life of a Christian faith, a life of Christian faith has a lot in common with the experience of riding a motorcycle. It's both invigorating, they're both full of surprises, people sometimes look at you kind of funny for doing it, you're going against the grain, there are risks, and you feel alive. You have to maintain your machine and bring the right equipment. Oh, and just like riding a motorcycle, you can get some bugs in your teeth being a Christian. There are always safer places to be. It's a challenge, an adventure, a wonderful journey. Now, I'm not going to be the one that goes out and buys a Harley just because I read that story, but I do think that there are a few of these phrases about the Christian life that are pretty great. People look at you kind of funny for living it. There are surprises. You go against the grain. Sometimes you get bugs in your teeth. There are safer places to be. So far in our study in Ezra, it's been 
they've recorded a pretty safe journey for the Israelites. It's been a relatively smooth ride. Sure, they were captives in the land of foreign kings, but for 70 years they'd been paying their consequences of their disobedience to God. But then Ezra opens the book, chapter 1, with this record of a miracle. God had stirred the heart of the pagan king Cyrus to issue a decree for the Jews to return to their homeland and begin rebuilding the temple. Hooray! That's one step forward. 50,000 Jews responded to this decree, and they gave up their lives in Babylon, and they began making this long, dangerous trek back to their homeland. Two steps forward. They re rebuilt the altar. They gathered in Jerusalem. They celebrated the Feast of Booths. They uh, laid the foundation for the new temple. Three steps forward. Yet when we get to chapter 4, the children of Israel are now about to get some bugs in their teeth. The smooth ride that they've been on in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is coming to an end. This is when, in chapter 4, the enemy hits and the work at the temple stops. One step back. The work of the temple had to cease for 16 long years. Two steps back. They're all back in their homeland, one step forward, but there was no place for them to worship in Jerusalem. And these people were intimidated by their enemies, and so they began to settle into a routine and a life where they got along without temple worship. And then God began to stir the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, who started, wanted them to get rebuilding and move, start building the temple and move in that direction again. And they faced all kinds of opposition. They faced all kinds of resistance. They gave up, at least temporarily, for those years. So let's look at the beginning of Ezra chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, they came to Zerubbabel, the heads of the families, and what they say, Let us help you. Let's build this house, like, and we'll help you build because we seek your God too. We have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So at first glance, this looks like, hey, they're volunteering to help. It doesn't really look like opposition to me, and that's true. But Ezra lets us know in that very first verse, these people were not friends. These people are not even nice. In fact, they're enemies of God. These were the neighbors to the north. And remember in your history that before they fell, Israel was in two, broken into two nations. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom was defeated by Babylon. And evidently the strategy of this time to keep these defeated kingdoms from resurging and revolting was to take people out of the homeland, scatter them in exile. But of course you don't want the land to lie in ruins and the city to fall apart, so they would bring people from other conquered areas to repopulate the land. We see this described for us in 2 Kings 17. 2 Kings 17, if you're taking notes, is very closely tied to Ezra 4. It tells of the Assyrian, Assyrian king that we find out here in Ezra 4 was named Esarhaddon bringing people from all these defeated countries and placing them in Samaria. Now, evidently, God raised up lions who began killing these people off because they did not fear God, 
And so the king had to send one of those exiled priests back to the land to teach them the ways of the Lord. So on a technicality in verses 1 and 2, these men were not lying when they told Zerubbabel that they worshipped the Lord. They sacrificed the Lord. That was true. However, what they did not mention, and what Zerubbabel and Jeshua had known, if what we read in 2 Kings 17, they worshipped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they'd been brought. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua already knew. They saw these men. They saw them offering to volunteer, offering to help rebuild, and they saw them as enemies. They were the opposition because they knew they had an allegiance to false gods, and eventually that would infiltrate the Israelites and keep them from truly worshiping the one true God. So one of the things we can learn here is that opposition comes from anywhere. Sometimes the worst opposition when you're pursuing revival and pursuing vitality comes from people who seem like they're your friends. Once Zerubbabel and Jeshua refused the offer of help, we see these people's true colors start to come through as they begin full-scale opposition to rebuilding the temple. Verses 4 and 5 say, Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus on down through the reign of Darius. Now, I'm not talking about just a little opposition here. If they began rebuilding 537 B.C., they continue through the reign of Cyrus and on through the reign of his son, and then Darius, we're talking 15, 16 years of opposition. And then if you jump down to verse 24, you see the response of the Israelites to all of this opposition. The work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill. They quit gave up, at least temporarily. So in verses 5 to 7, we're jumping ahead almost 100 years. Verse 5, we're talking about rebuilding the temple and it's being brought to a halt. And then you, verses 7 through 23, what is being stopped, and this is, can be very confusing, so I want to uh, stick on this point for a second. They're not rebuilding the the temple in verses 7 through 22. Now they're talking about rebuilding the city and the city walls, which is what the book of Nehemiah is mostly concerned with. And it's important to understand that there's a hundred-year gap here in Ezra 4 because Ezra is the story of rebuilding the temple. Nehemiah is the story of rebuilding the walls. So the story that we're looking at, rebuilding the temple, stops in verse 5 and is not picked up again until verse 24. Why is this important? Well, first, in order to understand, we need to know what's going on, and context is key when you're trying to understand Scripture. The book of Ezra is being written a hundred years after the event that's recorded that we're talking about with rebuilding the temple. So what the author is saying to his audience is, you have to understand this is nothing new. The opposition and the trial and the hostility, that's been going on for 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. In fact, if we want to go back to the Babylonian captivity, opposition and difficulty and trial have been going on for more than 200 years, and that's the immediate context that they're reading this in. So this is a dose of reality for these people. 
The author is saying to them, you understand. Your fathers went through this. Your grandfathers went through this. Two generations have passed, and there's been opposition from the very get-go. You know what that means for us? Following Jesus has never been glamorous or glitzy. Why did God not make this easier for the Israelites? These are his people, right? What they're, what they're doing is exactly what God wanted them to do, so why does God have to make it so hard? Why is there all this opposition and resistance and persecution? Why does it have to be such a struggle? Why is life so hard? We have the same questions, don't we? We have our own struggles. And then we remember that in Acts 14, verse 22, it says, through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. That is the Apostle Paul's number one lesson about mission, evangelism, life in the kingdom of God. Paul never says, believe in Jesus and you'll be wealthy. Or believe in Jesus and you won't have to worry anymore about your health troubles. We know there are times in our life that are good and sweet. We know there are times where you can say, my cup overflows, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me lie down in green pastures. There have been days when you have said, God is so good to me. But I'm going to venture to say, that's not where most of you are because of trials. There are problems in your marriage. There are problems in your home. There are problems at work. There are problems with your children. There are problems in your relationships. And Ezra is giving the Israelites and us a reality check. Three steps forward, two steps back. So let's think about that for a minute. If you're cruising along with no opposition, no struggle, everything's easy, what would happen when you came to a hard time? We would fall flat on our faces. When an athlete is trying to get stronger, what does the athlete do? He lifts weights. He works out. He runs harder. He runs faster. Pushing against resistance tears down the muscles so that when they're built back, they're stronger. In the same way, small struggles and resistance and opposition that we face will help shape us and strengthen us for bigger challenges that we face down the road. So when opposition tries to keep you from pursuing God's will for your life, trust, let God use it to strengthen you and trust God for victory. We have an enemy, don't we? His name is Satan, and he will do anything in his power to keep you from pursuing God's will for your life. Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against powers of the dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Peter warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And James 4, 7 tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You don't have to memorize seven steps or pray a special prayer to overcome the devil. Just say no. Put your spiritual armor in place. Resist. Before telling us to resist in James 4, it says, submit to God. 
And he goes on to say after that, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Don't pull away from God when there's challenges and struggles and trials and opposition. Draw near to God knowing that he cares for you. Persevere in the face of opposition. This is a lifelong battle. And if we try to do anything significant for our God, the enemy will hear that we're building and will stir up the opposition. If we give up, Satan wins and God's kingdom suffers. If we persevere, God's kingdom advances. So I want to tell you a story. See if I have any, I don't know if I have any history buffs other than my husband in this room. So tell me, raise your hand if you think you know who I'm talking about, and I'll let you guess. When he was seven years old, his family was forced out of their home, and he had to work to help support them. When he was nine, his mother died. At 22, he lost his job as a store clerk. Who do you think it is? He wanted to go to law school, but lacked the education. At 23, he went into debt to become a partner in a small store. At 26, his business partner died, leaving him a huge debt that took years to repay. At 28, after courting a girl for four years, he asked her to marry him, and she said no. At 37, on his third try, he was elected to Congress, but two years later, he failed to be reelected. At 41, his four-year-old son died. At 45, he ran for the Senate and he lost. At 47, he failed as the vice presidential candidate. At 49, he again ran for the Senate and lost. At 51, he was elected president of the United States. Many consider Abraham Lincoln to be one of the greatest leaders in our country. But Lincoln obviously suffered numerous setbacks in both his personal life and in his public career, yet he persevered and he eventually succeeded. So you too will offer, new, will experience numerous setbacks and you will suffer when you commit to follow the Lord and try to follow him. Be prepared for the enemy's attack. Don't give up. We shouldn't be surprised, should we, when we start praying for revival and vitality and then suddenly things go wrong. When we feel distant from God or when it's challenging to pray or temptation seems stronger than ever. When those things happen, don't panic. Don't think the sky has fallen and all is lost. This is normal. God is still in control and use opposition to your advantage. When opposition tries to keep you from pursuing God's will. Let God use it to strengthen you and trust him to give you victory. So what happens after 16 years of a delay in the rebuilding of the temple? How does this process get kick-started again? What is going to encourage the people who are discouraged and defeated and disabled to pick up their tools again and start rebuilding the temple? Well, among a number of things, there's a preaching of a prophet named Zechariah. And typically, Zechariah's message is rarely viewed in this historical context that we've just studied. But it's in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, that says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, when he's saying, Pick up your tools and start again. 
And what does God say? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We're talking about a very gracious God. He's saying, Zechariah, go tell poor, discouraged Zerubbabel, it isn't by your might, it's not by your power or your technique or your finesse or your talent. Tell him, tell him and tell all the other discouraged believers anything that's ever been built for the kingdom of God has never been built by the power of humans, but is built by my spirit, says the Lord. Paul says to us in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24, faithful is he who calls you, he will bring it to pass. So when you've been brought to a standstill in your life, remember to still stand. Even if it means you get a few bugs in your teeth, you realize that standing for Christ, there are safer places you could be, but you still stand. And remember that you live and grow and advance and build, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Amen.